Hello and welcome to Over the Edge. Today's episode features an interview between Matt Trefiro and Wolfgang Gensch, co-founder and president of UberCloud. Wolfgang is a passionate engineer, computer scientist, and entrepreneur with 30 years of experience working in engineering simulations, high-performance computing, scientific research, university learning, and the software industry. He is an entrepreneur with six successful startups in Germany and the U.S. in engineering, high-performance computing, and cloud. In this episode, Wolfgang tells us about the early days of network computing and how the grid was the predecessor to the cloud. He describes how advancements in connectivity and processing power can lead to revolutionary changes in everything from technology to healthcare. Wolfgang also explains what he thinks edge computing is today and how his company is working to help democratize access to computer power in the cloud, which was previously too expensive or too complex for most organizations to use. But before we get into it, here's a brief word from our sponsors. Over the Edge is brought to you by Dell Technologies to unlock the potential of your infrastructure with edge solutions. From hardware and software to data and operations across your entire multi-cloud environment, we're here to help you simplify your edge so you can generate more value. Learn more by visiting dell.com for more information or click on the link in the show notes. And now, please enjoy this interview between Matt Trefiro and Wolfgang Gensch, co-founder and president of UberCloud. One of the things I love to ask my guests right off the bat is just like, how did you get involved in technology? Yeah, I mean, someone with my age, it started early, a long time ago. I studied math and physics at the Technical University of Aachen. And Technical University says it all, so that's all about technology. I did my PhD at the Technical University in Darmstadt in Germany in mathematics, applied already then to solve complex engineering simulation problems. So very early, still during my studies. After the PhD, I was a researcher at the Max Planck Institute in Munich, developing numerical algorithms for plasma physics. Again, a big piece of technology there. And last but not least, and the next step getting even deeper into technology was when I became head of the computation fluid dynamics department at the DLR in Germany, in Göttingen. I usually tend to call it German NASA for those who don't know internationally, I mean, DLR. And so, yeah, my tech journey, basically to summarize like a 30 plus technology living so far. My technology journey began with so-called scalar von Neumann architecture computers, then moving over to vector computers. I think everybody, almost everybody knows the Cray, the Cray one, to parallel machines then like Intel, Muspar, Alliant, N-Cube, and yeah, some remember the connection machine. And finally, then grid computing with basically widely distributed networked computing resources. Yeah, so let's touch on some of those because those are all really interesting. So first of all, what's the difference between a, a scalar computer and a vector computer? A scalar computer handles every arithmetic operation in a scalar serial mode, one after one after one. Which is how we tend to think of computers sim- in, in, in simple terms. Yeah, 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 you have, exactly. You have one instruction, then you have the next instruction, etc. And the vector computer bundles instructions into basically whenever the data has the form of a vector, having 
like tens or hundreds of vector elements, then there is one operation. One operation, vector plus vector equals vector, or vector times scalar equals vector. So this is just one vector instruction. And obviously, these beasts are 100 times faster than von Neumann-based computers. And the next generation, then parallel machines, by the way, they are another 100 to 1,000 times faster than even vector computers and so on. So these were, at those days, the big jumps, the big disruptions or advances then in computing and applying this to more and more complex applications. Yeah, so, so I'm interested, you set up a comparison between these other elements and a von Neumann computer, but I, I tend to think of all computers as von Neumann computers. Am I, am I thinking about it incorrectly? What do you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, the uh, von Neumann architecture was with a central processing unit for one operation, von floating point operations. And obviously, when you zoom into a vector computer's instruction, then you recognize, yeah, there are similar scalar operations, but on the vector element level. And when you zoom out, you see, hey, these are 100 operations, which are all identical, but on different data. So, uh, I mean, uh, it's uh, certainly a difference because it's much more clever to put the data streaming out the memory banks, so to speak, than uh, into the vector units, uh, again, 100 and even more times faster. How do you think of the advances back in those days compared to, say, adjacent processing capabilities like GPUs and even FPGAs. Is there a relationship that you see or is it just different technologies? No, no. I mean, that's a great point. We already then in the late 70s had SIMD machines. So arrays of processors, which uh, not just handled vectors, but whole matrices. I mean, many of the physical problems which we uh, approach by numerical algorithms, turn into matrix times vector equals blah, blah, blah. And uh, an array processor, like the there was a machine called DSP, for example, distributed uh, processing array something, or is already forgot, that was in the late 70s. A great guy connected to this machine was Burton Smith, who served some of him really well, the architect. And this machine was able to handle an array, like a matrix, in one single instruction. Okay. And, and by the way, very much looking like a, a GPU does it today. Yeah. And so clearly the ability to solve many, let's call them math problems for lack of a, a better term, simultaneously and in parallel is useful when you're dealing with anything of great complexity. I mean, computational fluid dynamics you mentioned earlier, which is like you're dealing ideally with you know, a digital twin of whatever you're doing. You probably didn't call them digital twins back then, but that's essentially yeah. what you're doing. You're building a digital twin of a, a model of a weather system or a, the air flowing through past an airfoil or something. How is that being used today? How is this sort of parallel processing? Because again, when, in, in the world that I live in, which is the internet, it's Intel servers and GPUs, and it's all this modern thing. And yet there's a, there seems to be this parallel universe in the scientific computing world. H help us understand how with the, sort of the, this current generation of, of parallel computing and 
how we think of the internet and how they're either separate or coming together. Mm -hmm. So our current architectures, again, from a bird's eye view, they originated in the mid to late 90s with an architecture that was called Beowulf at those days. And these were commodity CPUs, commodity compute nodes, basically interconnected, ideally by a fast interconnect. Today, we would say InfiniBand. And in a sudden, with commodity compute nodes and compute servers, you were able to turn this machine into a high-performance computing system, or in short, HPC. And since then, this basic architecture hasn't change, uh, changed a lot. So now recently with the uh, tier exascale system at the U.S. Uh, Oak Ridge National Lab, which is a $500 million machine in the meantime, so number one on the top 500. So this is the fastest supercomputer in the world. On a higher level, it's the same architecture, but with much more sophisticated and uh, latest generation technologies, obviously, compared to what Beowulf then was able to do in the late 90s, uh, beginning 2000s. That's interesting. And so, so we have this world that, again, most people interact with, let's just say Google. And it does feel like a parallel world to high-performance computing. It's almost like the, the people that figured out how to do distributed processing within a Google data center to spawn a bunch of tasks out are solving a, a very similar problem to what you're trying to do with parallelism at a high-performance computing level. Are they parallel universes or, or do the scientists go back and forth between let's use the same principles to solve a parallel problem mm -hmm. regarding a, a weather system or a, mm -hmm. or a wind tunnel versus solving a parallel problem, which is like giving somebody search results faster? <laughs> I mean, again, from a bird's eye view, uh, Google data centers uh, doing search, for example, I mean, they are as fast as you basically figure it out, like in 0.1 second answering your search request. They do it in a tree-like parallel way as well. But in high-performance computing, we don't deal directly with these applications. In research and industry, we are certainly solving the grand challenges, so to speak, of, yeah, I hate that word, but of mankind, which yeah. is uh, which is uh, climate change, <laughs> uh, environmental challenges, yeah. earthquake and tornado forecasts, for example, or yeah. efficient electrical car engines and batteries. Or right. recently uh, right. we were involved in uh, exciting challenges like uh, heart and brain diseases that you can simulate and as soon as you can simulate something with high accuracy, you get deeper insight and you can ideally, and uh, this is already done with heart, you can repair heart valves, for example, which are defect. Or you can look at arrhythmia in the same way and identify the best suited drugs for basically uh, calming down the arrhythmia attacks or like brain disease. Schizophrenia is, is another challenge, which we tackled together with one of our customers. And yeah, oh, not to forget now with the virus, now virology, drug design, whenever you, in short, Matt, whenever you design and develop a product for the next generation, which you will intend to bring into the market in one or two years or so, 
It's all about simulating before you build it. And that's the mm. high-performance computing that I grew up with, basically. Yeah, it's it's so interesting. It is clearly, in, I mean, to me, obviously something that's needed, but it, it's something that, that has largely existed in the sort of rarefied era of, of research scientists and physicists. And it's a really interesting, it's a very different than the, the young person coming out of school that goes to work for Facebook and Google and is trying Absolutely. to improve the, the speed of a, of a web interface. Yeah, it's really interesting. Okay, so let's, we'll come back to high-performance computing. But sure. before we do that, I want to come back to sort of the history of this. And so one, one of the most, I think, interesting topics is you and I met because I found an article that you had written or a transcript from a talk that you'd given around the early days, well, the, 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 in the days of, of a product that, that was called SunGrid, which was Sun's utility computing system, which is arguably one of the first cloud computing systems ever to exist. I think the timing was around when Amazon Web Services, when like S3 and EC2 were, so there was definitely a lot of things happening at the same time. But can you tell us your version of that? Like how how you came to cloud, how you came to this, the network is the computer or whatever version of that. Let's let's go back to that. What were you doing and how did you end up at yeah, Sun? Great, great. Real pleasure to talk about this one. Is In the early 90s, I founded my first software company, Genius Software, standing for a company like Gesellschaft for Numerical Intensive Applications and Supercomputing. And we found out that we were able to interconnect workstations into a network. And with 20 or 40 workstations, we got the very first project was with Volkswagen. They had, I remember, over 40 silicon graphics workstations standing around and nobody was knowing, had, had a clue about what each of these machines were doing and which ones were idle and others too busy, etc. So we helped them to interconnect them with a network turned them, so to speak, into a very rude <laughs> or, or crude parallel machine then and started running, at those days, uh, codes like fire for CFD combustion simulations then on those machines. And we, in, in the course of that project, we developed a software which we called Codeine, Computing in Distributed Networked Environments, later on called Sun Grid Engine. Now you see the context. And so this system was basically a workflow or a workload management environment that were, was able to manage the jobs submitted and distributed onto this cluster of workstations. And that's how SunGrid was born. Sun Microsystems, a little bit later in the late 90s, developed a 24 processor system, which they called Animal Farm. And they were looking for yeah, the Animal, animal Farm. farm. 20, 24 compute nodes, tightly coupled, now in a cabinet. And they were looking for a management environment, a management system. And they found us, looked at us, and acquired my company. The part of that of the company that developed this grid engine, namely Gridware, was called, and so this technology came into Sun, and was the foundation for Sun's grid computing, and later then basically moving into cloud computing. So that was in 2000, while as you mentioned, Amazon's AWS started in 
2006. That was when the Sun already developed its N1. That was the real build, was, was built on, on SunGrid engine, but much more virtualized than and much more elegant and more general. Then, uh, and that was the real predecessor of cloud computing. And that was in 2004. And then two, two years later, Amazon came with its brilliant idea of setting up AWS. So what would you say is the difference between what Sun was working on and what Amazon eventually came out with? What's the difference? What's the insight that Amazon yeah. had that Sun didn't? So the technology, which was based on Sun Grid Engine, is more loosely distributed, loosely coupled through an enterprise network, for example. Already then, we enhanced this technology from cluster computing to enterprise computing, then to real grid computing, wide area network connection of large computers even, and a lot of manual interactions. And that was the reason why this technology, grid computing, was mainly used by researchers. They are fearless. They don't care about manual interactions, interference, or etc. While the next step of cloud computing, really providing a fully automated, basically, infrastructure of resources, which was very necessary because they already then provided different kinds of resources based on different processors, slow to very fast ones to high performance ones, depending on the application, which you moved to the, to, to the, to the cloud. So one was more still in its infancy. I mean, you def definitely, the grid was the predecessor of cloud, and that's why there is not a real huge difference in both ways, but the cloud infrastructure was completely virtualized and therefore fully automated and more, uh, and, and now I use that word, uh, democratized, because almost everybody was able to use cloud resources then, which you couldn't easily say about grid. A grid was really for specialists in research centers. That's really interesting. And and to to a very large part of the population, it still has that that bespoke meaning that that even though what the grid computing today, which exists in the scientific community and elsewhere, looks a yeah. lot like cloud computing yeah, <laughs> yeah. for scientific applications. And so my historical understanding of of grid is is somewhat limited. So please cor correct me. My my modern interest is to merge those worlds because I think we, we lost a lot of really interesting concepts with the metaphor of grid and some of the work that Ian Foster did around autonomic computing and those sorts of things. And it's becoming, you say the manual intervention in the, the grid back in the day versus the automation that Amazon provided relative to what I think we need, Amazon's automation is, is rudimentary because it still requires yeah. a tremendous amount of human intervention. It's certainly in setting it up and designing it. Now, what are the problems that the the grid computer scientists encountered and attempted to solve? And I don't know how far they solved it. Was the ability to sort of pool yeah, that was heterogeneous the next step then. You're resources. so right. Yes, absolutely. And that doesn't really happen in the cloud. I mean, it's starting to happen with some of the multi-cloud work, which is interesting. It's like another level of abstraction. Yeah. You've got, you're virtualizing the whole cloud as opposed to just virtualizing the machine. Do you see the sort of the, the world of grid computing and the world of cloud computing largely staying, I don't know, conceptually separate or in different cliques? Or, or do you see those worlds? Uh, so uh, grid computing is definitely 
a predecessor of cloud computing. So what in the past you were able to do with grid computing, you now can do with cloud. And especially, you're so right when you say it's still, the infrastructure is still quite rudimentary. But on top, companies like UberCloud, they have developed engineering simulation platforms, which span multiple clouds even. So you have heterogeneous resources, either in one data center, which you can pool together for solving a complex application, like with pre-processing, solver, 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 post-processing, visual presentation, etc. So now with this very highly intelligent layers on top, the application layers, which have to handle these complex engineering or research applications, they enable real democratization these days, right? While uh, in the early days with grid, I mean, uh, in the very beginning, I think almost your first question started with, you have read a paper. And yes, in 2000, I remember exactly that paper, which you were quoting, where I compared grid computing with a utility, like water, electricity, etc. Now you tap into those days, you tapped into grid resources at your fingertips. That was the idea, but we were still quite far away. So it was more a vision then, which has been described in that 2000 paper. But today we are there, obviously. I mean, with an engineering simulation platform that I just mentioned, you can set up any resource for your specific application you have at your fingertip. With a few clicks, click, 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 then you build up your cluster, then you move your application container. So this container technology is a intellectual property of UberCloud that we have developed over the last seven years. And with that application container or engineering workflow container, then you move it from a repository onto that cluster. You do your work in the same way, identical to what you are used to do on-premise. So there is no learning needed these days, which is wonderful. And uh, engineers are used to do this on-premise, and now they do the same thing in the cloud. And so when they are ready, they shut down the cluster. They don't pay anymore, so it's pay-as-you-go. And everything is on demand. And these uh, containers have uh, among quite a few uh, bells and whistles so in high-performance computing. The nice uh, feature that you can work also not, not only batch, but interactively. So you can interact with your application while it's running. You can modify parameters, you can check intermediate results, throw them away, do geometry improvements and all that in the meantime. I mean, it's democratization at its best. Let's talk a little bit about high-performance computing, HPC. That's a word that that I'm not very familiar with. At least I've come across it much more in my, my research in the last few years, but I'm not really familiar with it. The term that I'm more familiar with, and I'm interested in how they relate, is is supercomputer. I mean, I grew up in the area where, you know, we would see images of these Cray computers, and they just looked so impressive. And now my my Android phone is like 10 times more powerful than, than the original Cray. I actually saw a Cray at the NSA Museum in, in Maryland, right next to the, the, yes. uh, the Enigma machine that they, <laughs> that they figured out how to break. What makes a Cray a supercomputer? And then when people say, well, now you've got a supercomputer in your hands, how does that relate to what you think of as high-performance computing? Yeah, obviously, that's a great question. I mean, you, you want to look back. You mentioned Cray. So uh, the first Cray came out in the late 70s. 
And it was like a $20 million machine then. And it was about 100 times faster than the previous von Neumann machines. And so that's obviously a big jump. And that's why people called it then a supercomputer. So, so was its primary advantage at the time that it could it could be programmed to run many, many different calculations in parallel and then combine the results? So it was a vector machine, right? And many physics problems, challenges, tasks, they can be developed from uh, some sort of Newton's equation, right? Goes back 300 plus years, right? Because when you discretize it with a finite volume, finite element, and other methods, because you cannot solve them in the continuum. Yeah. So yeah, there is no one solution, a mathematical solution available. So you solve it disc discreetly right? in uh, elements in your computation domain. Right? And that leads to matrices and to vectors. And uh, a vector machine just, so you, you take the first one and then every other data comes automatically out of the memory banks. And that allowed Seymour Cray then uh, to build a machine which was able to not only work on scalar arithmetic expressions, but on whole vectors. One instruction is, for example, vector plus vector, one macro instruction. Right? So that, that's why it was 100 times faster than the von Neumann machine. And when you look what comes afterwards, so the parallel machines, the grid, the cloud, etc. I mean, you simply now add more and more machines to solve the same task. And with like a parallel machine with 1,000 processors, so that ideally gets 1,000 times faster. And when you zoom into the processors, they are little vector machines today, right? Like your phone is kind of 100 <laughs> times faster than a Cray-1 system 40 years ago. Were the Cray systems, were they particularly good at sort of matrix math and the way that GPUs are today? Is there any relationship between GPUs and... and the vector machines? So it, you could say it's a predecessor, yeah, absolutely, because matrix vector operators are obviously ideally suited for GPUs as well. So the SIMD machine, single instruction, multiple data. So SIMD, single instruction, mm. is like a vector instruction. Mm. Multiple data is uh, the number of elements in the vector. Right? Same with GPUs today. Yes, you're right. Very interesting. Okay, so now high-performance computing. How does that relate to supercomputing? Yeah, okay. I mean, supercomputer at those days and for another 20 years or so was just in the hands of highly trained researchers who could really handle these machines, still programming often enough in Fortran or C, C++, Fortran 90, etc. right? So not for the masses. But when the Beowulf type of parallel computers uh, came in the market, like you know, 1,000 compute nodes, all looking the same, and built even in the beginning from the engineers themselves, right, who then used the machines. And that started the period of high-performance computing. So it wasn't a supercomputer, as I said, was more for the researchers, but HPC is more for the masses. And when HPC started, we then had the idea to democratize high-performance computing so that basically every engineer and every researcher 
could handle not only these machines, but especially the applications on top of them. When you say thousands of computers that all look the same that can be sent to do these matrix math or these vector sort of problem, work on lots of problems simultaneously, it sounds a lot like the cloud. What's the difference between a cloud that looks like a supercomputer because it has millions of computers potentially and a high performance computing system that might be sitting in a data center somewhere? So a supercomputer is obviously a very tightly coupled machine. So one, one of the ingredients for that one is really highly, very fast interconnect, connecting all the nodes in that computer. It's uh, not Ethernet at that point. And, and it, no, it's not, not anymore Ethernet. It's InfiniBand and already now second generation or so. Very fast with very low latency, able then to scale out. So ideally, scaling here means you have 1,000 compute nodes and your code runs 1,000 times faster compared to just on one compute node. So it's linear scaling. And uh, if you do it right, and if the algorithm is well suited for that one, you get close to it. So that's a supercomputer, right? Tightly coupled, highly efficient, scaling, etc. cetera. Uh, cloud itself is not necessarily scaling, right? So you have a, a, a wide variety of compute nodes. This is usually not the case in a supercomputer. In a supercomputer, all the nodes are looking alike, ideally, for very good reasons. No time to go into details with that one here. And so a cloud, on the other hand, has at least, I mean, over 100 different compute nodes. But, uh, you mentioned GPUs, also FPGAs, but almost any kind of CPUs based on Intel or AMD architecture, for example. But with the UberCloud engineering simulation platform, you can basically pick and, and choose and put your system together at your fingertip with all kinds of different nodes which you need. You might need uh, GPUs for acceleration, but standard CPUs for doing the broader calculations, etc. And so the cloud is much more flexible. A computer, a supercomputer is not flexible, right? It, it, it just does one thing really good, which is a structured arithmetic operation, multiple data. But the cloud can do basically everything. For every application, you can choose the right compute nodes and the interconnect and also how you get the data in and out. And so I, I did want to talk a bit about yeah. UberCloud. So, so tell me, UberCloud's your company. That, that you're running today, what, what problem are you, are you solving? I mean, we are taking the engineers' simulation workflows as they are, not changing anything, not touching anything. We put it in a special HPC, high-performance computing container that we have developed over the last eight years. And then these containers, they are sitting in a customers in the user's repository, like a library of application containers. And whenever the engineer wants to do, for example, an anti-fluence computational physics, fluid dynamics uh, simulation, then he takes the container out of the shelf, puts it on the UberCloud engineering simulation platform, and then ready to go. It is basically no learning needed. It's the same look and feel and working environment in the cloud as the user is used to have the on-premise environment. Are you replacing supercomputers yeah. with the cloud, in essence? Yeah. And again, Matt, I 
want to insist on not using supercomputers in okay. that context because the engineers in the industry these days, I mean, they are very often happy with a few hundred cores and a dozen of compute nodes, etc. because that is already 10 times faster than what he or she is used on premise, right? So factor of 10 is already good to get from days to hours or from hours to minutes then to the result beating up your whole simulation process then by by factors we have customers who are 10 times faster than on-premise others are even 50 times faster than on-premise because they use a bunch of gpus that they don't have on-premise for example right so they accelerate and 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 like eight for example now, now, do the typical HPC workflows that, that people build today that are running on-premises, I mean, there still are supercomputers, but there's still millions of dollars, they're, and they're orders of magnitude more powerful than, yeah. than what existed before. Yeah. And probably most scientists don't have access to those unless you work for the government or some very, very large research organizations. Yes, that's right. But, so, so you're saying that most of the users of UberCloud are performing their HPC workloads on-premises on, like, typical off-the-shelf Intel servers. And so you're saying, look, we can now take yeah. what you do on-premises and we can run it on the cloud, it's pay-as-you-go, and you don't have to change your workloads at all. You can store things in a repository. You called it a container. Is it re related to Linux containers or are you just, is that just a metaphor that you're using? No, no, it is related to Linux containers. And very intentionally, we used in the early days, we used standard Docker runtime environment and put 32 layers on top. And each layer is kind of an HPC layer. Right. So for InfiniBand, so these containers, they talk to InfiniBand, MPI, message passing interface, and a lot more, right? So they are specially built for a high performance computing workload and also underneath for HPC environments. So these, uh, this platform is infrastructure agnostic. So you can seamlessly move it from one hyperscaler to the other hyperscaler without changing anything on one end. So this is uh, below. And on top then, above, the containers are able to host any kind of engineering workload, be it simple solvers like Antis Fluent or Dassault Abacus, or be it highly complex workflows with pre-processing, solver, 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 you know, when it comes to multi-physics, then on post-processing and remote visualization. All is in the container. So you don't have to basically take care of your, your workflow itself, building it, or it's all in the container. It's ready to go and it's interactive. So you can interact with uh, simulation and improve parameters, modify, do multi-physics, do digital twins, do uh, even even data analytics, for example, where the analytic part is very compute intensive. And how does UberCloud determine how many cloud computers it's going to spread the workloads around on? Because you say a container, I, I tend to think of a single container running alongside usually other containers on a single machine. And then I think of like, clusters, right? I think of, you know, let's just take Kubernetes or something, right? Where you have multiple containers running on sometimes the same machine, sometimes other machines with network together. Help, help me understand how UberCloud relates to the sort of the, the clustering orchestrators that exist today, like Kubernetes. Uh, excellent question. And you point to a USP, we call it a unique selling point or unique feature, which is we don't run multi-tenant. So that's when you have yeah. multiple containers on a single machine. An engineer would not really like 
to work on a machine where her competitors sure. are working as well, right? They want to have a single machine, and a single machine can consist of yeah. many yeah. nodes. Each node hosts one container, and these containers are talking to each other because they are solving one and the same problem. So they need to work kind of kind of in tandem uh, together. And do you spread that scientist, that you know, hypothetical scientist? Do you spread her workloads? Do you just is it just on a single single tenant machine, or do you take multiple cloud machines, all single tenant, and then? Treat them as a cluster where you're running, where you I can I can sort of scale out the HPC exactly. workload like I would a cloud workload. Okay, yeah, yeah. and yeah. it's a single tenant environment. Yeah, yeah, very correct. And each compute node hosts one of the 100 containers, which together build your environment. And the engineer is dealing with it as one system. Yeah, and it, and it seems like one of the most powerful value propositions is that you to the scientists who are used to building the workloads today on premises you can it's just lift and shift no changes it runs on there now one of the things that All that right. so just out of curiosity what's the largest workload that anybody's run on uber cloud how, how many machines let's just make it simple yeah. Okay. There, there are few engineers, you know, we call them power yeah. users, right? They uh, increase the workload or say, for example, the degrees of freedom, the number of finite elements, the number of finite volumes, etc. successively until the, uh, I would say, uh, the application does not scale anymore really well. When you add more resources, you won't get far with that one. So it's like, uh, first it's nicely linear, increasing, and then at one point in time, the system is uh, exhausted, so to speak. That's when you have to go buy a supercomputer, right? You take out your checkbook. And that's when you have to, yeah, the supercomputer could do it a little bit better because of the tightly coupled yeah. interconnect, which is basically the most expensive part of the machine, mm -hmm. right? Then uh, you won't easily do that in the cloud. The approach for the engine is usually pragmatic, meaning, uh, I mean, you, you don't use too many nodes for slightly increasing uh, uh, efficiencies. And so you, you're wisely making use of that. Also, your manager wouldn't really like when you just try to use infinite number of resources, right? That can so, be so are we talking ones of computers, dozens, hundreds, thousands? What's the scale of these workloads? Yeah, it's usually, yeah. Uh, so the average uh, user really the average user uses between 8 and 64 machines. Some use more, just turn it into cores. Usually with the latest CPU technologies, you can have about 100 cores per compute node, and then you get to 10,000 cores. Yeah, I was going to say 10 or 11,000 I mean, cores this, pretty easily, yeah. yeah this, is, this is a lot. Yeah. And these days, you know, when it comes to artificial intelligence, like uh, deep learning, machine learning, then you can do the acceleration dramatically and faster than with neural networks, do training for the neural networks, and then get a highly accurate prediction instead of the full simulation, which takes hours, you do a prediction which takes two to three seconds. And the result is about 95 accurate. Yeah, in fact, one of the use cases that you, you sent to me in your email, I'd like you to tell the audience about, which is this manufacturer. Can you tell us the story of that manufacturer and how they're using UberCloud? I guess you're talking about the Living Heart Project for the uh, Heart Valve. 
we have done this cloud study with a company and they were providing the code you know the abaco simulation code for this for for 3dt holdings hard valve simulation so it's about hard valve repair and we have done 3000 simulations on 3000 clusters on the google cloud platform and then we have used these 3000 results to train a neural network algorithm that then was able indeed, as I mentioned, uh, to turn a 10-hour to 20-hour hard, full heart simulation, fluid structure interaction, then into two to three seconds prediction with over 95% accuracy. And just for the curious audience, that whole project, the resource consumption was just under $20,000, which is Compared to the result you achieve, it's peanuts, right? I mean, it's amazing. Now, this is for a real-time hard valve operation simulation for the doctors, right? In the future, it has to be still approved by FDA, the Food and Drug Association in the U.S. Yeah, actually, the 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 one I was referring to—that's super interesting. That and the ability to to run health simulation, or at least to train the models. I mean, that's so, so that's, okay, that's an interesting dynamic, right? When you talk about like the, the full continuum from the thing to the cloud, right? And you've got the things at the edge, you've got things that are, that are centralized. Most of these workloads are running in centralized environments. They're running out in some region somewhere. And I can train these very complex models using high-performance computing techniques. And then I can push the results of those models down to the edge for fast inferencing in low latency environments. And one of the, the examples of that that you provided was autonomous driving, which we've talked about a million times. We don't talk about, but the one that, that was yeah. really interesting was this manufacturing that manufacturer that builds like oh, seventy thousand no, parts no, an hour. I, yeah. So right, tell, tell right, us right, if you can tell us yes, who it yes. is that's great. If you can't, just describe <laughs> what their business is and like what they're trying to accomplish I, 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 and I, I, what problem I, I, they had. Yeah, that's the one that I thought was super interesting. Yes. Okay, so this is the market leader in building, and I want to be careful, I can't mention the name, because everybody then immediately says, oh, these guys, yes. So it's the market leader in producing 70,000 parts per hour, right? And everybody uses these parts, right, clearly. And they have hundreds of customers using such a 70,000 parts building, developing machine right and these these machines are so the customers buy the machines they buy the exactly they buy the machine make, and make use these, these parts to make their products okay. out of that right? all right it's a widget yes. maker it's a widget maker and it makes seventy thousand. like a single machine makes seventy thousand widgets yes yes, yes. All, per hour, per that's, hour. A, that's a lot of that's a lot of widgets yes and wow. there are many parts of this machine which can break Right. And they have equipped yeah. this machine with hundreds of sensors. They listen, they smell, they measure temperature and the noise and whatever, and report it now. Okay, it's, it's local IT environment is an edge, obviously. Right? Sure. It's responsible for orchestrating all these sensors and getting the essence out of uh, their data and then sending it to the cloud. And the cloud uses it for training a machine learning algorithm and gets more and more and more intelligent based on that because there are hundreds of machines out that report any 
deviation, any any strange noise, any not standard behavior, so to speak, right? The idea is really, and it's just uh, in the makes now, the idea is that then as soon as there is a, a new noise you know, discovered on machine X somewhere in Brazil, right, then this gets reported to the central brain in the cloud. And that brain discovers, oh, yes, it is exactly part 777, which broke recently with the other customer. And then, okay, let's ship that part and uh, so that they can basically control it push, you know, bring down the machine, do the repair, and then bring it up again. Usually this takes maybe one or two hours, while if it really breaks, then the machine stands still usually for days until... Well, I mean, that is, that yeah. is the, you look at manufacturers and that is yeah. the, the number one un, unintended cost factor is is just stop the production yeah, it's line. It's millions. It's huge. Know? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's yeah, a, yeah. Imagine. I mean, every hour, it's seventy thousand parts you didn't make. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's a, exactly. That's a lot of parts. Yeah, yeah, and and so and that general model for how to approach doing predictive analysis on complex systems. Right. First of all, it can be applied to anything, whether it's a. You know, you talk about GE does it to their jet engines and their trains. Yeah. You could do it with a bridge. You could do it with a car. You could do it with all these things. Yeah. And it seems like like the model that's really promising is using the edge for the, which is relatively expensive, quote unquote, right? Because you've got mm-hmm. batteries that you may have to keep charged or minimize energy use. You've got the expense of putting like all these processors out there to do this stuff. And so you want to make the things at the edge super focused and super efficient, whereas the things in the cloud have more luxury to run these longer processes and these across many, many computers. And so you can train these models in the cloud and then push the intelligence or the heuristics to or the, the inferences. Down to the edge, and whether that's a better algorithm for a smart camera to detect a firearm, yeah, or a uh, a new way for a manufacturer to detect a vibration that they didn't notice before, that then indicates that a part probably needs to be replaced. That seems completely transformative to everything in our lives. Tell me how you see that. Like, what do you see of that changing our lives? I mean, you mentioned healthcare, which is super interesting. You you sort of like you know, be speculative a little and just imagine where where oh, sure. we as an industry could take this. Yeah. High performance computing itself is uh, growing, I would say, you know, because it's uh, part of our business, it's growing nicely. You know? It's 7 to 7% per year, average annual growth. Cloud computing, cloud H- HPC cloud yet. So it's just really, it's, that's a difference, right? HPC cloud uh, is growing about 18, 19, 20% per year. So at least double. And then there are at the horizon now coming up uh, new applications which there are early adopters already working with them, you know, like digital twins, for example, where you really need, you need real time to basically accompany a physical twin, like, like the machine that we talk about, with a digital twin, which is ideally at least as fast as the physical twin is working, so that you can watch and, you know, survey. Does, does that mean that you see... Yeah. You see yeah. HPC workloads eventually moving to the edge because you need to to run and, and they more are complex. already yeah very good they, they, already, they are, they are, yeah, yeah, yeah. give me an example of that I, yeah I mean I mean you want this the same example as pre- as, as previously this company which uh, that we mentioned has built the edge 
for every machine, you know, they have an edge system, an edge environment. That one is already intelligent. So locally, there is a lot of computing already to get some information out of the data. And this information then can be sent to the cloud and further digested, so to speak. So there is HPC at the edge and certainly more massive HPC than, than in the cloud. And as I said, so you need that for digital twin, but you also need machine learning for digital twin because you want to be your algorithm, your machine learning algorithm, for example, even a bit faster than the physical machine to do prediction, right? Uh, to do highly accurate prediction for what could happen potentially so that you can fix it. And, and then, yeah, obviously healthcare is another big topic these days, growing dramatically because all these machines you see at your dentist or in the hospital, you might have had the luxury to benefit from it already. They get much more intelligent now. I mean, you know, they, they recognize early what problems you have, especially internally when you can't really look into you, et cetera. So, but then there is a very important part of many of these things is data analytics. You get tons of, I mean, we are facing now a data deluge, right? So you need to analyze these data. And uh, so to get real useful information out of billions and billions of, of data, coming from yeah, also millions of sensors, for example. And then there are, yeah, there are more areas coming up the horizon. Yeah, autonomous driving is, is, is another one. I mean, uh, yeah. you know, these, these, and, and this is really... Just everything yeah. in our world. I mean, even like my life today, where I don't have an autonomous car, I drive my own car along with sure. everybody else on the road. Yeah. And that's a huge, you know, fluid dynamics problem, right? I'm just imagining how much more efficient we could get with everything. I mean, yeah. let's just take roads or waste management or, or anything just by building these digital twins and refining these algorithms. Okay, so data deluge, lots of data gets created, probably too much to affordably and certainly not in real time, ship it back to the cloud because the cloud might be 150 milliseconds away. And so now obviously we can move the cloud out farther to the edge, which is happening already today. And we can move it. In fact, we can take an Amazon outpost and stick it on premises. And now you have a cloud on, on premises. Do you see HPC workloads running in real-time environments or do you see HPC workloads running alongside real-time environments providing this? These, I'm just trying to understand, do, do, you, do you see these the, the HP scientists, your customers, adapting their systems to run in real time. And I mean real time, I mean I mean ones of microseconds, right? Maybe even, well, hundreds of microseconds, let's say. Maybe ones of one millisecond, two milliseconds, something like that. Yeah, yeah. Do you see HPC workloads running like that? Or will, will HPC always be kind of like the slower, more methodical, when I say slower, I mean, I, that's relative. No, no, no you're, you're completely Non-real right. real time. Yeah. No. Is that is that how that, that my, is going to yeah, relate? My simple answer is yes, exactly. As, <laughs> exactly. I'm not on trying to explain this. No, 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 exactly as <laughs> yeah. you describe. I mean, otherwise people wouldn't buy these $500 million machines, right? The exaflop machines these days that perform, you know, exaflop who, who makes, per second. Who makes these machines? Who uh, makes these exaflop uh, machines? Previous Cray, so which is now in the HPE harbor, so to speak. Okay. Uh, it was simply too expensive for a smaller company, a relatively small company yeah. like Cray, to build such beasts. Right? I mean, you, you need a lot of money backing up the whole development, design development. You only have to sell process. one of them, though, one a year. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It's uh, sure. But you need more than one 
one per year, right? Uh, I yeah. mean, uh, we see more and more systems now coming in exaflop machines. I mean, the first have already been installed. Oakwish National Lab is, is, is one of those with my dear friend Jack Dongara. And so then there are three three more coming in the US. There are three more coming in, in Europe. Chinese might have two very soon. And and at one point in time, you know, like the petaflop machines, previous generation, factor of 1000, basically in speed up, 10 years of old now, we had hundreds of petaflop machines recently, right? So, you know, they are all at one point, I'm going into mainstream. Yeah. But we are not talking about Exaflop machine. I, I, want, I want to say that. Do you see a future where one or more of the major cloud providers buys one of these supercomputers and offers it? Yeah, uh, I mean, uh, you for... know, companies like Microsoft on Azure, they indeed have already a Cray, not okay. that huge machine. Right? They have a close collaboration with HPE slash Cray, but you have to buy, or you, you, I mean, or ideally, I mean, you, you, you want to buy the full, the whole system. Right. This is very expensive, right? Okay, but yeah. it's not the average engineer who is already happy with 500 or 1,000 cores, and this is affordable because you can use, if you do it right, you can use spot instances, which you pay only 20% list price, or reserved instances where you pay only 50% list price uh, for the right application, right? So currently, the price or the cost of cloud is in the same order as the cost of on-premise systems. Five years ago, it was a factor of five difference. Today, it's it melted down, so the cloud cost melted down because of always fastest and latest technology than to a break-even, basically. So now that cloud is similarly costly, so to speak, as on-premise, then you can look at the other benefits. Right? So the other benefits, I mean, for example, time to market, right? higher quality because you can do more, more parameters, more materials, etc., and, and get a better product where then that means you are more competitive than come, coming with a better product into the market, uh, ideally two months earlier uh, than uh, the others. That's a lot of benefit. And also innovation is another benefit. You can innovate at your fingertips these days. You don't have to build two, three, four, five models and crash them against the wall or whatever, which costs a million per crash, so to speak. Now you do it in the cloud, which might cost $1,000 or $5,000 even, but it's much, much, much cheaper then. So there are a ton of benefits these days when you move to the cloud. So one of the things that I've been wanting to ask you about, because there aren't that many people whose careers have spanned such a such a, a, a wide swath of the modern world, and you joined Sun back when they had they used the used the phrase "the network is the computer," which was you know still provocative, right? And interestingly enough, when Oracle bought them and they lost the trademark and Cloudflare, yeah, <laughs> Cloudflare Cloud registered yeah. the trademark, the network's computer. And then, like I said, you wrote an article or it was a transcript, but you said the internet is the computer. And I'm curious, what, what does the network is the computer mean? And what does the internet is the computer mean to you? Yeah. So uh, the sentence, the network is the computer, has been coined by uh, Scott McNeely one of the co-founders of Sun Microsystems and one point in time, my boss, he coined that when they started shipping 
the workstation, right? So the workstation, you know, that, that, that was a novelty, was connected to a network, right? So that these machines could basically talk to each other. Yeah. And then when I came into Sun 15 years later, when that was in 2000, our technology, we called it Grid Engine. So it was basically the era of grid, of grid computing. And we talked previously about this before. So the grid networked together larger machines than not only workstations. By the way, so my company then was called Gridware in at those days that has been acquired by Sun Microsystems in 2000. And this was a grid operating system, so to speak, so that you could move simulations to the least loaded machine. So you don't, you didn't have to look into the machine, uh, how loaded it was, but uh, the uh, grid engine was able, it's a workload management system, right? That was able to basically know almost everything about this loosely coupled cluster of either workstations. It was one of the so first was, global schedules. Yeah, yeah, it was basically, it was a, was a, was a global. It is, it is also used even these days, you know. Grid Engine uh, went then through Sun Microsystems to Oracle to Univar until now it has been acquired recently by Altair, an engineering simulation firm, and they use it for... So some of your code is still, still there. there. And even the people, all the people moved except me. Oh, I, interesting. I got out of yeah. that part after four years doing other very nice things, mainly real grid things. So building the North Carolina statewide grid, for example, or the uh, German D-grid, then the government uh, called me back. And then European grids like DISA and EUDAT. So so that was the, the era of grid computing and was loosely coupled. And it was obviously, I mean, now with this explanation, it was certainly a predecessor of the cloud. Yeah. The cloud is also, I mean, uh, certainly, I mean, like like Microsoft, Azure, they have over 60 data centers, right? and each data center has thousands and thousands of machines, and some portion of that is high-performance servers, which you can use for engineering, complex engineering simulations. And yeah, so, so that was basically the cloud is an evolution of the grid then with a much more dynamic, flexible, agile approach, while grid was still still basically a bunch of traditional machines put together, connected together in a network. And that's why we called it the grid and the cloud made use of the internet, right? So these compute nodes in a grid, the grid was part of the internet because you, you transferred data through the over the internet. So that's why I took Scott McNeely's sentence and turned it into the grid is the network like that. So the grid, now the cloud, the net, yeah. In a way, it's, it's, I mean, it's an imperfect metaphor because obviously the network is not the computer. The computer is the computer. But right. I, I think to me what it means is we have things in our common life, in our day-to-day, -day, that we want to actually run on multiple computers because it's more efficient yeah, or yeah. more, you know, either from a speed standpoint or a cost standpoint or, or something else. And obviously the network, crucial part of that, in fact, sometimes the most crucial part because you can't get a workload to another machine without it being on the network. So when I think of like the network is computer, the internet's computer, it's almost like it is like the cloud, but it's like you're throwing your workload onto this this network of computers and it's figuring out how to, how to run it, which is sort of Very what correct. Uber Cloud does. Okay, so that's that's super cool. That's super cool. Okay, and then the last thing I want to ask you is, again, you've been in this industry a long time. You've seen a lot of change 
there's a lot of change coming. What's what's most exciting to you? Like what what change are you hoping for to happen in your lifetime that's most exciting to you? Yeah. Now, HPC is really in the hands of everybody. Everybody here means, you know, engineers and scientists. Like uh, a few decades ago, it was only handed, made, given into the hands of specialists. And that opens up the door for so many new applications and making any kind of research or products basically coming out much faster. So that this exponential acceleration, which we are in for quite some time, that will continue and will help us to solve problems, real problems. And I say not challenges, but like in in healthcare, for example, or climate and weather forecast and also new technologies, yeah, electrical cars, autonomous driving and all that stuff. So successively making our lives even more convenient, more comfortable, and also solving mankind problems, which we are facing. Do you think we, we have in the, the research enclaves the necessary knowledge and algorithms to solve these problems. And what we mostly need is the democratization. We need to be able to run them faster and cheaper. Or do you believe there's still some like basic science innovation that needs oh, to Oh, absolutely. Happen? I mean, on the hardware side or architecture side, we will see quantum computing. But quantum computing is not well suited for everything, right? So there are specialized applications which run a thousand times or even more faster than on conventional machines. So we see that one. But people certainly want to try out or want to get that benefit from quantum computing in developing new algorithms for that one. So that's the software side. The software side is already, is always a little bit behind because, I mean, it's a real challenge to develop a 10 million lines of code software from scratch, right? You won't easily tackle that. You start with small solvers and then you grow and grow from two and three dimension dimensions into four dimensions. So that has been the case already for the last 50 years. And we will definitely accelerate. So the most exciting thing is really that we see healthcare advancing dramatically. Maybe we saw, and not maybe, at one point in time, we know much more about viruses and about cancer and about, for example, the brain. I mean, there is a huge brain project here in Europe. Jülich, the, the research center, Jülich is deeply involved in that, for example. There is a brain simulation conference every year about these challenging things. We had a very nice application on schizophrenia. Right? Instead of hammering holes into your brain, now you do it from the outside with a ton of high-performance computing supporting that. Right? And I mean unimaginably many yeah what a fascinating world we're stepping into hey, wolfgang this has been a, a really great wide conversation that was a mixture of history and present and future i'm super excited if people are interested in finding you and or uber cloud yeah. online where should they go they can they can either either look on linkedin find me under my name wolfgang gensch or we have certainly a help site on our website where they could type in a few questions or whatever. So we are very open 
and uh, look everywhere for these kind of questions and help we can provide. That's awesome. Thank you very much. That does it for this episode of Over the Edge. If you're enjoying the show, please leave a rating and a review and tell a friend. Over the Edge is made possible through the generous sponsorship of our partners at Dell Technologies. Simplify your edge so you can generate more value. Learn more by visiting dell.com. <laughs>